The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. Hard interaction with a loved one, um, and the other to to see that the healthy option is actually just to step aside, to step out of that interaction for a while, um, and trust that that's the the healthy thing. And I was trying to. We're trying to connect that to the river metaphor and, you know, so you can sit up on a rock for a while and let the river flow around you or sit on the river bank. You're still part of the river. You'll return to it. Um, but sometimes it's, um, the thing to do is just be intimate with it and, um, have that hard experience with someone that, um, that needs you to be there for them. Um. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. And sometimes all well, all that. Did you want to say? Something? Oh. Oh, great. My name is Carlene, and I think, is it Barbara? Is that your name? Yeah. And I guess I want to, what resonated with her story, remind me, Shelley, of the story you told about sitting with the terror. She was at a retreat. Tell me if I tell this accurately. Oh, would you rather I don't share? Okay. I mean, I just struck with intense fear related to a migraine out in the woods, cell phone doesn't work, can't call my husband, and the sitting with the fear in terms of bodily sensations rather than the mind. And I was just felt a lot of respect for that story of how, because I can so easily get caught in my mind, but if I listen to my body rather than getting absorbed in my mind. Yeah, thanks. Who'd like to go next? Um, another an issue that came up in our group was how to um, have a skillful reaction when your uncertainty and anxiety is coming from your concern about either um, other people, like maybe teenagers who are maybe acting out or your partner or those kinds of things, and how you... Um, you know you're having these emotions and you know you're starting to feel out of control, but you, how do you respond in a way that um, is consistent with the practice and you know that if you completely lose control, you're not going to feel good. But it's just, we, it was just something we came up with. Like how, do you, how can you tell what's a repression and a healthy repression versus a skillful response versus a genuine response? And, and we just started parsing it out and... I'll just leave that there. Thank you. Yeah, yeah please. Hi, um, my name is Jim. In, in our group, we ended up talking about, at one point, uh, a re-understanding of something from Thich Nhat Hanh about smiling at what you encounter, including if it's really scary and terrifying or ugly or even a, a 
some some of the examples you've just given, working with a partner. Oh, how do I do that? And I used to think when I first read that in Thich Nhat Hanh, I used to think I thought of the yellow smile button. I thought you can't smile at stuff. You know, that's it's superficial. But much more recently, we were talking about, and others in the group as well, seeing it um, quite differently and very deeply. And in fact, the smile itself, <laughs> when you begin to smile, the feeling changes towards even even the terror. Hello. It's you again. You know, I mean, it's really, it really is so. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be a lie. Just, I see you, right? It's, you don't have to say, I love you, but we can say, oh, here you are. Welcome. Time for maybe one or two more from the groups. Yeah, Meredith. My name is Meredith, and I was amazed, impressed at all the wisdom within the group I was in, and so much of it connected the fear or the feelings of whatever was going on with something that was very stable. And usually it was coming back to the body or something that just didn't move and how settling that could be and just kind of helping move out from the fear, anxiety, or whatever, and just finding that moment of stabilization and then being able to keep coming back to that. Last reflection? Yeah, all the way. Thank you, Tom. Tom's also helping with recording today. Very appreciative. First, I've already spoken, so I was wondering, was there anyone else who wanted to speak? Okay. Um, my thought was about, um, sometimes I get confused about the yes, you know, saying yes to everything and, and trying to really let it in because I feel like we're learning, I'm learning a lot about, um, for instance, last week, Mark, learning about not being a jerk you know, and saying no, and, 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 and no, Mark, <laughs> you know, so, so it's, I, I was, my group was helpful, but at the same time, you know, we're learning how to pivot, how to, how to have moves. And so I, I get challenged between when is it time to say yes? And when is it time to really deflect or get a move? Take one of that mm-hmm. I'm learning, I'm learning so many skills. And so um, I guess I'm just really struggling with that because I think th- think we learn about ways to have our mind change or revisit something. And so when do I really totally let it in and when do I try to morph it or m- take a move that's going to make it different? So, that's Yeah, and this is actually, Mary Laurel, a beautiful segue to the talk. Maybe I'll give it now um, if there's nothing else. <laughs> Why is that funny? <laughs> no, because cause the, the question is, what does freedom look like? Freedom with change, freedom with anxiety, freedom with uncertainty. What is, what is the nature of freedom is a really 
useful question for us to unpack together. And I'll say a few words, and uh, we'll have a a whole group discussion before we end in in about an hour. And uh, just to reflect about what freedom is, because part of being free means I'm free to go to bat for my mind. Like when my mind's getting sucked into a vortex of negativity, it's like, I'm not afraid to do my dharma moves if I have any move that can be helpful. And if there is no move to be helpful, I'm okay with that too. But just because we're free doesn't mean we're not going to show up and engage and do what we can to sort of be helpful for ourselves and for others. And there's always going to be this misunderstanding, or you could even call it a shadow, and how we hear these teachings from the Buddha, because it can at times sound like the Buddha is advocating for passivity or just allowing things to be, and that's it. The, <clears throat> the sense of release really allows for a more natural, nimble, and wholehearted engagement. But sometimes the engagement is just letting things be, And sometimes the engagement is like really getting in there and getting dirty with some, you know, community issue or even within our own heart and mind. Like, I'm not going to let myself think that way anymore. You know, la, 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 la. (laughs) I mean, we're willing to play and try anything when we feel like the inclination of the mind is really not helpful. Well, yeah, why wouldn't I get in there to try to change what my mind is doing if I see some habit being activated that's just not good for anybody. That doesn't mean I'm going to do things that are unproductive, but it means that I'm going to try anything that wisdom suggests might be helpful. And there's a joy in like not giving up. And as long as we're alive, as long as we have relationships, as long as we have a feeling, heart, and thinking mind, why wouldn't we sort of, as a human being, own it all? So you see this idea of it's all impersonal doesn't have anything to say about, it's not about disengagement, it's about how to free up engagement, how engagement can be more light, more nimble, more creative, more helpful both engagement with her own inner space and engagement with the world around us. It's about being free as a human being instead of not being a human being, (laughs) which a lot of people, that's what they associate spiritual awakening or whatever with is somehow like this transcendence idea of getting the heck out of here because it's complex and, and painful. And the thing that makes this work of freedom really grounded in reality. I read recently somebody refers to the truth of uncertainty, the truth of unreliability, the truth of things being ungovernable as a kind of purgative. Most of you probably know that word, but it's a little rare to use that word purgative. So purgative is something that makes you have to poop, right? And... uh, so when we on purpose use uncertainty and change 
from the place of a human being that wants to be more and more intimate with the truth of things. And we get this teaching from someone like the Buddha who says, okay, what you need is this purgative of uncertainty, of change, of impermanence. You need to take that medicine. And you don't need a particular time or place because it's available any time, any moment of your life. You can attune, align yourself with the truth of change, and it will lead to letting go. Because <laughs> that's what it does. And this is for each of us to discover on our own. Like, wherever you are, let's say you're in that place in your life where you're falling in love. You've met somebody, seems like a really nice connection. You're attracted in all the right ways and inspired and, you know, all the, it, all the right buttons are getting pushed, right? And so then you hear this teaching because you decided to go to a workshop on change and uncertainty. And you, you say, I'll try it out, right? Because it can feel like you would never say that to the person. Okay, we're having dinner. It's like, and that steep curve of the love, you know, where the whole relationship is just blossoming and possibilities and maybe forever. And, and you decide to contemplate uncertainty. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows how this will play out? Who knows? I don't know. I know that I don't know. That's what I know. I know that I don't know. I know it feels great. I know that there are a lot of thoughts and emotions moving in the heart and mind about possibilities, how nice it might be. And I know with great certainty that I don't know how this is going to play out. But I do know that everything ends in loss. On this realm, everything ends in loss. The difficult stuff that we want to end will end. And the beautiful stuff we don't want to end will end, right? Because anybody confused about that? That's how it works. And then the, the interesting question is, what happens on the pragmatic level of that relationship, you and that other person in relationship, with you bringing that contemplation in? Does it get in the way? of it being a really wonderful, if it can be, a wonderful time? Does it get in the way or does it help? Same thing with your own body. You know, contemplating the uncertainty, vulnerability, <coughs> exposure of having a body, exposed to aging, for example, exposed to viruses, as another example, exposed to so many different things. Our skin is pretty thin. You know, it doesn't take much to get harmed as a human being. Especially given, you know, that we tend to move around and at a fast pace in cars, among many other things. So what does the, I mean, just on a very pragmatic level, if we explore this contemplation, choosing on purpose to keep impermanence, uncertainty, vulnerability in mind. Is it a downer or is it an upper? And we shouldn't presume we know until we check it out in all the ordinary ways. It's like such a nice day. Tomorrow evidently is going to be warm. And, you know, we're already thinking, okay, we're out of the woods with winter. And, you know, what a setup that is. 
when, you know, the late March blizzard moves in or whatever it might be. Who knows? Maybe, maybe not. But we know that we don't know. But definitely next fall, right, it will, something will return. It's called winter. <laughs> so just to keep that in mind, and, and the same thing when things are really dark and painful and difficult and scary, to contemplate the truth of change. I don't know much, but things are still in motion. Could get worse even, or could get better. But that we tend to want to repeat a scenario of like, as if we know with certainty I'm screwed, and I'll always be screwed, right? But we don't know that. What we know is that things are constantly changing. It's really difficult now. It feels unbearable. It feels unworkable. I don't like it. And it's changing. We contemplate the truth of change. We keep it in mind. And the Buddha says that's liberating. And our teachers tell us it's liberating. And, gratefully, our own experience, when we check it out, our own experience tells us reveals that it's liberating. In the same way that it's a setup for anxiety and betrayal, when we, whenever, and in the open discussion later, you might bring this up, examples of this, but any time in our life we pretended that it wasn't going to change, anybody been in a relationship that felt reasonably good and you imagined it wasn't going to change and then it changed? Yeah, a lot of pain there, right? Or a job that you pretended wasn't going to change, or a body you pretended wasn't going to change, and then it changed. Or a country that you thought wasn't going to change, or you had this idea that it was going this way, and then things changed, and then it went this way. And are we thinking it's always going to go this way, right? See, it's the same thing. It's like what we can count on is the uncertainty we can count on things being not fixed. And this actually is where uh, the Buddhism and the, the Buddhist teaching, the Dharma, this sort of alignment with the way things are, this is the freedom that comes from contemplating change. It's the peace of a mind that's not fixed the peace of a mind, the freedom of a mind or a heart that isn't imagining things are set or fixed. But that peace, that freedom, depends on aligning with change. So we really have to, it's like a powerful transformation where we're consciously, willingly letting go of any imagined fixed stances, any ground. It's sort of this ironic, you know, what's certain is groundlessness. Our sure ground, our refuge, is groundlessness. Any attempt to have ground is a setup for anxiety. We're anxious because we're pretending something is ground that isn't ground. That's the root of anxiety. One of the great lines, I don't know if you know Milarepa, he's a 
sort of the patron saint in Tibetan Buddhism. He lived around the 13th, 14th century, something like that. And uh, he was like the quintessential yogi in the mountains, living in the cave, eating nettles so much that he turned green from eating, I don't know, you know, nettles, right, the stingy plant. (laughs) And uh, his transmission to his senior student before he died, he's going to teach his senior student, disciple, the secret teachings. So at the end, before he died, he pulled up his robe and showed him his buttocks and how thick the callus was from sitting in meditation. The secret teaching, you know. Be right with your experience. Be intimate. Don't be afraid. But anyway, the, <laughs> when his practice finally started to hum along and he was really able to stay present with change, with the reality of thoughts coming and going and sensations coming and going and pleasant states and unpleasant states and just sit in that relaxed and peaceful way, right, then, now, I don't know if you know this about Tibetan Buddhism, but, but it's very ornate in a beautiful way. But it's different than this tradition we practice at Kamgran is early Buddhism, and it, it has have much more of a stripped-down flavor to it, more kind of simple, where Tibetan Buddhism is more ornate. So one of the ornate teachings, or <clears throat> I don't know what you'd call it, descriptions of how the mind works is when your practice is humming along, all kinds of wonderful things happen, including these uh, celestial, uh, feminine, um, dancing. They're just elements of our own heart and mind, right? They're called the kinis. I don't know if anybody's heard of these. But it's basically a manifestation of our own mind, very vibrant, alive expressions of wisdom started to manifest in his practice. And they would chant in this really powerful way, this beautiful chant that gets translated to, on the steep slope of fear and hope, demons lie awaiting. When the mind slides into fear and hope, the duality of fear and hope, good and bad, then we're in the realm of demons. We're in a demonic hell realm. Whenever we think something is good, we've created hell. Whenever we create hell, we create heaven. Wisdom understands heaven and hell are constructions of the mind, that things keep changing. And because neither are ground, what makes hell hell is thinking that we're never going to leave it. What makes heaven seem so heavenly is we think we're going to have it forever. But what our experience always teaches is that stuff keeps going, keeps changing, keeps flowing, never, ever ceasing. This is what we learn to trust. And just one more story. This is uh, from, you know, it's one of the legends of the Buddhist life. And it, it's, I don't know, if, you know, whether it's really true or not, whether it really happened, but it's a powerful teaching story. So it's said that at the time of his birth, the Buddhist parents were told that by a seer, psychic, that your son is either going to become a really benevolent world leader, really just leader, or he's going to become a spiritual teacher. 
and renounce anything that's fixed, right? So not going to want the kingdom, not going to want to be the ruler, not going to want to be even a, a benevolent ruler. And the parents didn't want him to become a spiritual person. They wanted him to take over, right? So they, they, they thought, okay, we'll, we'll make his life lean this way. And it's, it's so revealing. How did they do that? We, we want to keep him away from the truth of reality, <laughs> that things change, right? So don't let him see the world. So they kept him in a bubble, you know, where everything was nice, everybody was young, you know. And then, of course, when he got a little older, he started to get curious, right? This is a little bit of an absurd story, but what it's what said is he asked his charioteer, hey, take me out to the world. I want to see the world I live in. And he first bumped into somebody who was sick, and he was shocked. My God, what is that? And the charioteer had to tell him, well, you know, people get sick sometimes. And that person is definitely sick. And it was, like, shocking. Oh, it's like... Health isn't constant. It's something that comes and goes. Next day or the next time he went out, he saw a really old person, shriveled, you know. Have you ever seen an old person? <laughs> we tend to hide them away, right? But he's like, oh, my God, what's that? And then the third day, he saw a dead person, completely shocked. You mean that happens to all of us? And then the fourth day, the fourth, they're called heavenly messengers. It's like, angelic teachers that, if we're lucky, come away. He saw a renunciate. He saw somebody who realized that a life in pursuit of wealth and concrete things like a nice house and a good car and one of the newer cell phones and this and that is fundamentally limited. Not bad, but not something that can lead to happiness. Any lasting kind of happiness. And so he saw, you know, a, a wandering aesthetic, a, a renunciate, somebody who had left behind sort of normal life in pursuit of wealth and comfort and was really interested in the happiness of renunciation. That's sort of what nuns and monks represent for us. You know, Buddhism is a monastic tradition. And Part of the role of nuns and monks are to be walking, talking symbols of the happiness of renunciation. The happiness of a mind not dependent on anything. So in a way, we have those two choices. We have our ordinary happiness, which is always the producer of anxiety, because it's happiness that's dependent on things that are in motion, that's just ordinary. That's like all of us. Most of what's making us happy right now is, I know I have a home to go to, but it's not dependable. I mean, it's relatively dependable, but it's not actually completely dependable. And I know I have food in the fridge, and I think people like me, some people like me, and I could count on that to some degree. My cat seems to have an affectionate relationship with me, some of the time. Same with my partner. And so that's ordinary happiness. And then real freedom is for my heart not to, to be dependent 
on those ordinary but ultimately unreliable happinesses, right? So it's not like I got to get rid of all of that, although you might want to experiment by going away for a weekend or something like that, just to take a closer look like, am I dependent on that? Because if I'm dependent on that, then whether I'm aware of it or not, I'm anxious because it's going to go away. Same with our own life. It's going to go away. So either we make peace with death or we live with anxiety. There's no other way. Either we're living with anxiety, even if we're pretending we're not. I'm okay with that. I've worked it out. You know, we tend to think that way, or I'll deal with it when I get closer. You know, I'm pretty sure I'll be able to handle it, but I'm not going to deal with it now. But we don't realize that's living with anxiety. So unless we've made peace with losing the house, losing the partner, losing health, losing our life, global climate crisis, country going to hell, unless we've made peace with all of the possibilities, and if you get good with the terrible possibilities, it turns out it's even more challenging to be easeful and peaceful with positive things happening. It's so interesting when we experience success and it really throws us for a loop. Somebody actually loves us and we just don't know how to handle it or somebody's nice to us. So this is a thing about making peace that anything can happen anytime. Anything can happen anytime. Are we okay with that? Is the heart living in a way where it's not dependent on anything being fixed or anything being certain, then we start to uncover the peace of a mind that's not dependent on anything. It's a very particular, subtle, but um, as the Buddha would say, it's a peace that goes beyond the happinesses that we've already experienced, the more ordinary happinesses is the happiness of a heart not dependent on anything. And this is for us to check out for ourselves. It's definitely not something just to believe in. It doesn't help to believe in it. I'll just uh, end this with a little poem that I like a lot. It's from Havis. Some of you know he's a Persian, um, a Muslim poet, Sufi poet. I don't know if people know that Sufism is kind of a, one of the mystical traditions in Islam, in case you didn't know that. And so he lived about the same time Rumi, who's a little bit more popular than Havis, but there's some good translations of his poetry as well. And this one, the title is translated, Tripping Over Joy. What's the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God and that the beloved, beloved God has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, now they're talking to us, I'm afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. 
Isn't that a nice little teaching about anxiety and change and living with impermanence? Tony, would you hand me that bowl? So we're going to have an open discussion now, but before that, um, we'll pass out some of these slips of paper because uh, Shelley and Mesky and I thought it would be nice at the end of the day to do what we do usually just on New Year's Eve. We have a one-time-only spontaneous Dharma poem. And we thought today we'd... Tony, would you pass these out for people who don't have pens? So you're going to write down a word, a couple words, a sentence. It could be your own words. It could be a quote from a poem or something you've heard today even about this happiness of a mind aligned with change, right? Something about coming into alignment with uncertainty, with vulnerability. It could be funny, right? It could be a little even sarcastic about our human nature. Or it could be something, some profound experience that you've touched into. And we're going to write a line. We're going to put them all in here. And then we're going to pass them out so everyone's going to have a line, but it won't be your line. And at the very end of the day, before we end at five, we're going to read our lines, one person at a time, in whatever order you end up saying your lines. And that will be our own one-time-only spontaneous Dharma poem on impermanence. Okay? So just think about some reflection, a sentence or less, maybe two sentences at the very most, your own wisdom words, like this poem by Havis, but shorter. <laughs> uh, no, we can pass it around. Yeah, that's great. And when you're done, you can just fold it in half and maybe pass it towards the front of the room and we'll just uh, stack them all. And remember, you could just do like a few different words that doesn't have to be a fully formed sentence. Uh, yeah, we can make more paper. Oh, here's some more. Everybody get a sheet? And as soon as Mesky gets all the lines and words, then they'll start passing them out and you can just take one. And why don't we take some time now? We have about 20 minutes or so before we'll do the poem. And uh, this is a time to ask questions about anything that we've covered today. And you can uh, address your question to any one of us that you'd like to address it to. And we'll use the microphone, which is Tom has in the back. Yeah, so questions about working with anxiety, working with change that have come to mind, things that you want clarified. So should we start? Or? Mm-hmm. Okay. So my name is Teresa, and um, I have two teenage boys. And I'd like to run to the hills, like away from them. <laughs> That's the question, what to do, because it looks, re- it looks, 
It, lo- it looks really bad when the mom leaves. Yeah. The dad can leave. Like, you know, it's not great. But when the mom is like, I'm done and I'm ready to leave. Um, and trying to um, uh, reflect versus react because they're kind of awful. If anyone has ever lived with teenagers, they know that, I mean, especially if you're their parent, because they know you'll love them unconditionally, even if they're awful. So. Yeah. And that sounds really bad, but... Uh, <laughs> well, but I, you're you know, talking how, to the how, right how, people because the three of us have solved this problem. Oh, good. <laughs> you're not going to like how we solved the problem, though. Oh, no. None of the three of us have had teenage children. Is that true? That's true, right? <laughs> Just want to make sure there's some secrets that I don't know about. But, but there's other ways that we have, and probably all of us, have gotten cornered by life, where circumstances are such that escape doesn't make sense. We'd like to escape. We'd like not to have the responsibility but we can't see any way to lose the responsibility. And it's kind of that feeling of being trapped. And it's really these particular places where deep insight can arise. It's really important that we see it as a conundrum, a a puzzle, which means that even if it's borrowed faith, we want a little bit of faith that as intense as the pressure is, as much as that feeling of wanting to bolt is, I'm open to the possibility that this isn't the way it appears. It it appears very oppressive. It appears to be too much. It appears like it's, sometimes it appears like it's going to kill us. And this happens even in ordinary relationships, like a partnership that's relatively healthy, let alone ones that are not doing so well. When it feels like if my partner does this thing one more time, that's it. You know, I'm out or I'm gone or if the cat does this one more time. But clearly the difference is if you leave, right, as a parent, you Mm -hmm. can't. You know, I feel like if I had a partner, I didn't, you know, then we could just say, okay, well, Same with like being, having a disease. You can't. Okay, maybe that's, maybe closer. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So the, the, but it's like human life is that way too. And I mean, I feel, I mean, I'm not saying it's the same as you, but I have my own experiences where I feel trapped. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, what have we learned from those places where we have felt deeply trapped? And one thing we can say, I think, if if we distilled our wisdom, we could say with certainty is hating the fact that I'm trapped isn't productive. It's totally understandable, but it's not helpful to hate that I'm trapped. And then it's just sort of interesting to notice that experience of being trapped, that all I've done, I have no clever move, I've just ceased resisting. So I have a very clear and honest um, sense of being trapped, but I'm not resisting it. Like that the formula that Shelley 
spoke of from Shinzen Yang. What was it? Anxiety is resistance, or the one about resistance. Yeah, pain plus resistance. So what? The, it's really the question. This is the particular pain from Teresa's experience. Is the difficulty of being a mother of teenage boys, but we could just substitute our own. So there is the pain, the difficulty of you know loving these people unconditionally, and they're doing what they're doing as teenage boys. And the only move is resistance or no resistance. Now, we have an idea that not, no resistance means that I'm going to be flattened by the difficulty or by the pain of it. And that's what we want to explore. What is being a mom of two teenage boys or whatever our, each of our situations are when resistance ceases. It's another word Mesky was using a lot about intimacy. So being intimate with the situation. It doesn't mean that you're sweet to the boys at all. right? It, it means actually you don't have any stance. Like I'm going to be nice to them with some hope that they're going to treat me better or something like that. No. You're, you're kind of giving your personality and the way you're relating them to nature. And you might be fierce in moments. You may be sweet in other moments. You may do a backflip. I mean, you might like really out of the box in terms of how you relate to them. But what you're, what you're letting cease is any construction in the mind that somehow thinks it shouldn't be this way. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, please, and then we'll go to back. Well, that, that uh, touches on something I wanted to ask uh, about anxieties. Uh, during the break, I was looking at the Metta Sutta on the wall there. This is what you should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace and so forth. And then contented, at the end of the first stanza, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties. And I thought, I'm, I'm a parent and a grandparent. And How do you be unburdened with duties? What's the relationship between my anxiety and the sense of duty and responsibility I have to others, such as parenting, and in fact I have such cases in my own life? Then just as she was talking, I was thinking, well, it doesn't say not having duties. It's, it says unburdened. I don't know how you answer them, but it seems to have something to do with not feeling it as a burden but it is a duty. I don't know, what, and I have—I don't have much. I don't have any wisdom on that. I wanted to ask that, as a matter of fact, and your your question reminded me of it. Yeah, this is a path of experimentation, right? To just take in that that instruction. Is it possible to have duties, have responsibilities, to be fully engaged without? Without being a without it being a burden, without it being a problem, you know this is the instruction that you've probably heard from us many times. Like, can this be okay? Can does this have to be a problem? That's the question to ask about everything. So you know, and going back to the parenting example, it's a it's a really useful thing. Just to, I was really appreciating just the honesty. Like teenagers are awful. I had I didn't birth a teenager, but one lived with me, and I work with them, so I know how how awful they can be. 
And it's like, it's kind of like an anatta experience to recognize, oh, this is their function. <laughs> like the teenage brain is like this, right? But just to not find ways to not take it, oh, this isn't one of the ways to not be burdened by life is to realize it's not personal. This isn't a personal affront or a personal attack on me. But actually the heart cares about this. And so it can't just let it, you know, the heart doesn't know how to just care, so it needs to somehow grasp onto it. Like, oh, this is a problem for me. Like, teenagers are awful. True. If that were enough, like, oh, I care about this. I care about how awful they are and how hard it is for me. Like, that's, that's enough. But the heart's like, oh, no, and it's a problem for me, right? I, I care about this, and it's a problem. So that's the trick. Can it just be what it is? And part of how we can learn how to allow things to be as they are is by just giving voice to what's true for us. Like, I hate, I hate being a parent right now. This really sucks. It's really awful. Like, there's hatred in the heart. Ah, how does that feel? What's that like? What's it like to feel burdened? Can this heart include that too? It's impossible to live in this world. It's impossible to know what to do. Can the heart break over that? And once the heart can include even that, this is what it means to live. Like we have so many more choices when nothing is off the table. Oh, all the feelings, all the thoughts, right? We can start to work with that. I've noticed for myself that as practice has evolved over the years, there's a lot more capacity. There's a lot less no's. Right? I can be engaged in the world in the ways I want to be engaged and in my own life with my godchildren who are not perfect human beings either, with my niece who is in her 20s and awful, <laughs> right? with my imperfect partner, with myself as an imperfect partner, with racism and misogyny and, you know, it's like, okay, this is, this is what I'm asked. This is what we're asked to do. We're asked to see how we can be engaged without this being a burden, which means the heart will break. And can that be okay? That's a, a non-answer. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. It takes a lot of bravery for mom to say that stuff out loud. I see you. Um, I'm a super extrovert, so I just want to apologize to any of my fellow practitioners today if what I said chafed or rubbed. So that first. I want to, I'm so profoundly grateful. I'm in a peace right now in my life, but the three of you created some conditions today that I'm so grateful for. Thank you. And see, there it is. That's the extrovert thing. I don't even, who even knows who Arsenio Hall is anymore. So here's my real question though. Like the condition, uh, there's this opening, right? Some insight has just emerged and one of, Y'all said, um, you know, what did I learn the last time, right? And it occurred to me, like, I have to take action right now. I have to do this now. And I am so scared. So the, this, this question is kind of like, I'm a hot, like, active, you know, and I'm 
this idea of feeling tone, right? I need to know the right thing to do with this insight. And I'm just would love a lot of guidance about like how to not really fuck those up, but like how to honor that insight, but do it in a good way. Yeah. Does, make, does this question make sense? A little bit. Um, is it about control to not it, fuck it's it like, up? I think I know what I have to do. I think I know what I have to do, and I have to do it pretty quickly. But no, but what I know is that it's going to hurt a bunch of people. It's going to make some people, you know, like there's no, the thing about talking about uncertainty all day was that what I realized, everything about what happens next is uncertain. All the options are going to be painful in some way. I'm more comfortable with accepting that it's going to be painful. And there's a whole bunch of other people that are going to be not happy with no matter what. So there is no actual right choice except for something that emerged today that feels like, hey, I learned this before actually, is to not wait. Mm. You, you know, so like, but how do I do that in a good way? And I don't want to harm other people. And so just, I, I don't, yeah, I'll leave it there. So, I mean, I, I want to say you have the answer, right? If you are able to actually really only tune in what you needed to do and purify your intention is not to harm. You know that. Like, that's the only thing you can know. Like, I really am not trying to go, you know, hurt people. But this needs to be said or this needs to be done. Like, that's the only clarity you could have. And even with that, I mean, it could be like, you may have the most amazing clarity and it could be received so badly. But that clarity for you is is this moment of not necessarily waiting or whatever, but just like like this you are change. You are part of this change and you are part of this nature. You are not outside of nature. And this nature, whatever needs to be done is this insight is moving through you. And you're not trying to be like the saint about it. You're not trying to be like, okay, I want the outcome to be. Then that like loses its potency and being real because you are invested in trying to make something happen. You could put that down. You don't know what's going to happen. And then still, this has to be said. This has to be done. And whatever comes up, I'm going to be okay. And it is freaking scary. And I also honor that. And I'm okay with that. Like, at times, you know, you are so sick of the fear. Like, okay, leave me alone. I just want to, I just, you know, but but you want to clarify. It's like, is it coming out of fear? Is it really coming out of this insight? Where is it coming from? And if it's good, you can trust that it will carry you through. Even if it's uncertain. As long as you are not invested on what needs to happen or how people need to like that situation, you have that freedom, that being unburdened by whatever comes. 
like this unconditional love you were talking about. We have so many things that just feels to me, like myself included, what unconditional love looks like or what this, this thing that is so clear that needs to be said. But we want it to be really okay. <laughs> okay, so like we have, we have got to, like all these meanings or being unburdened, what does that look like? And, and I, you know, as much as I love the Buddha, um, and he looks so Zen, but, you know, he said so many things that, like, needed to be said and straight. Like, and if that's what is needed at the moment, that's what's needed at the moment. So carrots and sticks, not just one thing. Before you go, Jay, you, and you'll be the, Jay will be the last person, could we start passing those around and here's the instruction. You could just uh, someone start and just pass it to people around you. Oh, great. So just take one and uh, don't read it. We'll read it all together. Just tuck it away. Make sure you don't have your own. Okay, Jay, we have a couple minutes left. What's on your mind? This is a brief one. Um, in our small group, uh, Teresa gave us a little process that uh, I know Robert picked it up right away and it goes like this Teresa remember when you're in that bad difficult situation you go like this remember yeah we all picked it up it's kind of like pause and breathe it was so simple but yeah, and, and so much of these kinds of techniques is breaking the freeze, the you know fight, flight, freeze tendency when we're facing something that scares us. And the key is, what's the alternative? So when we learn our, whatever the trick might be, it sort of creates an alternative way of being in that moment. So we're not going to fall in. Because those habits are, you know, they have a deep groove to get tight, to freeze up, to get angry, be defensive, to um, freeze, fight, run, <laughs> flight. Yeah. Thanks for that. So everyone will get one. Why don't we go ahead and take a look at it? And wh we're just going to sit silently until Mesky passes them out to everybody. And listen to the instructions because we're going to want to do it well. So, Tom, would you shut the blower off? It's the middle switch on the bottom of the thermostat so we can better hear each other. So the most important instruction is when you feel it's time for your line, you want to read it so with this desire that everybody in the room hears you. right? Some of you I know have quieter voices. So really speak up so everybody hears you. And you're only going to know when it's your turn when it feels right for it to be your turn. So you're just sort of really comprehending the dance of the poem. And then it will just feel like, oh, that's my turn. And you'll read your line nice, loudly, clearly. If you have a smaller voice, stand up because then people can hear you. And we have about 60 people. So we want to move through the poem at a nice clip, so not too big of a gap between people reading. 
And it, it can happen where two people will read at the same time. Then somebody just back off, stop talking, and then the person who maybe started, if it was a little garbled because both of you, just start over again with your line, okay? And then eventually the last person who hasn't read their line will read their line, and then we'll know that that poem will never be heard again unless you listen to the talk because we are recording. <laughs> so just wait. Now you can contemplate the message you got that you're going to be reading so that you're clear. Begin, and then if it feels like you have the first line, then you just begin. <laughs> you want to read the poem? called Sakula from a good home. I once gave all of myself to being the perfect wife and mother. Then I heard the teachings of the Buddha. I saw the arising and passing away of what was wife and said goodbye to my husband. I saw the arising and passing away of what was mother and said goodbye to my children. What was left I gave to the path. Oh, my sisters, you never had to be perfect. If there is something in these teachings calling out to you, it's because something in you is calling out to these teachings. The path will take you whenever you're ready, just as you are. The first three women poems of the early Buddhist nuns. So it's almost five. Uh, most of you know that all the programs at Common Ground are offered as a free gift. Of course, this happens because of all the people before us over the years that have supported the center. And it really allows us to offer the programs in this really beautiful, generous way. And the hard part is that everyone here now, all of us, we need to receive the community and the teachings as a free gift. Really let it land, really not like... Uh, Oh, I have to do something because no, we want to really receive it as a free gift. No strings attached. And then if you feel moved at any time, then contribute. Volunteer your time. So much of what gets done in the building happens because of volunteers. Contribute money to support the office staff and the teachers in the building. And a lot of you know we're developing a retreat property in western Wisconsin but let that gift be freely given. Not because you took a workshop, but because it feels good to give. Because you don't have to give because you took a workshop. That was a free gift. And that's the tricky part. You really have to, and that's not easy for me, and I'm guessing it's not easy for other people to really receive it as a free gift. So that the people who allowed that to happen 
they get the benefit of giving you this retreat, right, by supporting the center up until this point. And, of course, we have more information. There's a sheet by the donation bowl you can look. Um, you can use the iPad if you want to donate today, and it, it, it will list this anxiety workshop, the anxious workshop. <laughs> you can donate for that. But at any point down the road, if you want to contribute to this workshop and the teachers who taught it, just put on the memo line something so that our bookkeeper and volunteer staffs that do the, the, the deposits will know, oh, yeah, it was that workshop with Mesky and Mark and Shelley. Good. And then lots of things are actually coming up. We have a guest speaker, Meg Riley, is it, speaking on Thursday night um, as a practitioner and also a UCC minister. And she's done a lot, or they've done a lot of work with incarcerated people, uh, ministering to them. And uh, it's really on this topic. I forget the exact title. Do you remember? Something about working with anxiety um, in anxious times or something like that, being being stable in anxious times or something like that. But you can look at the poster on the bulletin board. There's some times to go out to Prairie Farm, the retreat property Common Ground has developed. In the next three weekends, Thursday night to Sunday, look for that in the weekly email, how to register for those practice periods. It's like a small family-style retreat, about nine people, taking turns cooking for each other. But everything's organized. You don't need to like, figure out what to make or anything like that. So uh, consider getting out there if you'd like. Intro class beginning on Tuesday and other programs coming up, including one of our favorite guest teachers that comes once a year, Santi Caro, will be here in two weeks. Uh, he and his wife live at a wonderful little Buddhist retreat center in southwestern Wisconsin. He travels around, but he's a really beautiful Dharma nerd, translator, and really uh, somebody who, although has a history being a Buddhist monk, has a real strong activist uh, practice, both here and then when he was a monk in Thailand back in the day. So he's coming in two weekends, so you might want to take a look. A Friday night talk, a day-long workshop, and then a talk on climate change and the anxiety around climate change on Sunday afternoon. So keep all that in mind. Check uh, the newsletter on your way out. Anything else? Yeah, thanks everyone for coming. Really nice to spend the day together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.